that uh, man, regardless of his state of culture and so forth, was essentially the same, that he was composed of, uh, uh, he was a spiritual being. And he was a spiritual being that was pulled down to the material, uh, the fleshly interests, the, uh, to an interplay in life that was, in fact, too great for him to confront. And I learned the rules of, uh, of logic and the scientific approach. These things, by the way, are not generally known to philosophers. And my uh, first uh, effort was to find a common denominator to all men. And I had seen him in his more primitive states, and I'd seen him in his highly cultured states. And I said, somewhere one can isolate a common denominator that embraces all men. And perhaps from that, we can unlock this riddle. Hello, and welcome to a new episode today of Plain Sight Podcast. I'm your host, Jacob. And we're going to be talking about quite a few different things on this episode. Um, We're going to talk a little bit about NASA. Not too much about NASA, but more so a person that was involved with um, the creation of NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab. We're going to talk a little bit about him because he has some strange connections to the occult. And we're also going to discuss how he kind of links to another person that is involved with Scientology. So we're going to be talking a little bit about Scientology and religion and the occult and how all of these things kind of fit together. And um, hopefully I'll be able to paint... Um, an interesting picture for you and because this this stuff I find this stuff fascinating and it's very bizarre a lot of this stuff is kind of weird out there so buckle up because it's gonna get it's gonna get a little weird but uh let's just start um got all my notes here trying to think of the best way to go about this. I guess I'll just start talking about this guy, Jack Parsons. He's going to be the main um, topic of focus for this episode. Now, what you need to know about him, he was born in Los Angeles, Los Angeles, California, in October 1914 to a wealthy family that lived in Pasadena, California. I don't have much written about his parents, but, um, you know, they were wealthy. I think they um, had connections to the military, actually. His mother did, at least, but I don't know. You can look into that for yourself. Um, At a young age, he was interested in science fiction, and I I don't know why I find that kind of funny, but... He was into sci-fi, like myself. I guess it's because I was into science fiction. I'm still into science fiction. I mean, science fiction is um, interesting because a lot of, in a lot of ways, science fiction writers have a tendency to predict things, um, and they're not even doing it consciously. But um, 
you know, there's a lot of examples of science fiction predicting the future in a way. But um, he went on to become a rocket engineer, a very talented rocket engineer and a chemist who... In 1933, he had constructed his first solid fuel rocket engine at the age of 29. So I'm 26 right now, and <laughs> the, you know I'm still living with bumming with my parents, and um, you know I have a day job and all that sort of thing. But I can't imagine building a fucking rocket engine. You know, at the age of 29, that's pretty insane. So he's a smart guy, right? Pretty smart. Now, the following year, in 1934, Parsons and a couple of other of his engineer buddies were allowed access to Caltech's laboratories. And if you don't know what Caltech is, they're the California Institute of Technology very prestigious institution, right? And it was there that they created the Galset Research Group. And Galset stands for Guggenheim Aeronautical Laboratory of the California Institute of Technology. So that's quite a mouthful. So they just called it Galset. Um, and it was through Galset that NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory was born, basically. So, they were doing a lot of rocket experiments. It's like that old saying, um, oh, it's not rocket science. I mean, you know, that saying is a saying because of, really, probably Jack Parsons. I mean, right here, um, a lot of people, I don't think a lot of people know this, and I found it, kind of interesting because they were doing so many dangerous rocket experiments and trying to figure things out um you know they were very dangerous and the people on campus gave that little group the galset group the suicide squad which i find interesting because um the suicide squad nowadays is known as um you know a dc comic book there's been a couple movies as of late. Um, there was a really shitty one from like, I don't even know what year, 2016, 2015, something like that. And then there was another better one um, directed by James Gunn that came out last year, I think. Um, and I liked it all right. It was pretty good. But, and I looked into... Um, the guy who wrote The Suicide Squad to see if there were any legitimate connections to Jack Parsons and the Galset group. Like, I didn't see where he mentioned them at all. But, you know, there's a little connection there. Whether it's, like, purposeful or not, I don't know. But, um, so in 1939, the Galset group gained funding from the National Academy of Sciences, to work on jet-assisted takeoff project for the U.S. military. And this project was called JATO. J-A-T-O. Um, 
and their rocket experiments ended up on the cover story of a 1940 August edition of Popular Mechanics, which I think I've mentioned them. I mentioned them on my Lockheed Martin episode. Uh, they're basically just American propaganda, but um, very popular uh, mainstream source, right? So they were on the cover story for them, and it discussed um, being able to ascend above Earth's atmosphere, and one day even being able to possibly reach the moon, which is what happened, um, allegedly. Uh, I, I plan on doing an episode about the moon landings, believe it or not. Um, I have a lot to say about it, but that's for another time. So, you know, it's because of Jack Parsons and this group of engineers that we were able to do that, right? So, in 1942, during World War II, they ended up founding the Aerojet Company to develop and sell the technology that they were creating, basically. Now, it was about 1939 through the early 1940s that Jack Parsons became really fascinated and enamored with Thelema and the occult, basically. Um, Aleister Crowley, sex magic, mystical occult practices he was really into because... Okay, so we're going to start getting into some of this weird stuff, right? So in January of 1939, Jack Parsons had a friend who took him to the Church of Thelema. And I'm going to encourage everybody to go to... Um, a couple episodes back, I did an episode on uh, Aleister Crowley and Thelema and Helena Blavatsky and a lot of these occult concepts. So that'll give you a lot of context. So I definitely encourage you to go listen to that um, because a lot of this stuff ties directly into it. So Jack Parsons, he goes to the Church of Thelema. The Church of Thelema was the Church of Aleister Crowley. Um, just to do a quick little recap, Aleister Crowley was like this very famous occultist who allegedly talked to this um, Egyptian deity um, called Awas, and it was through him that he channeled this uh, book called the Book of the Law, and it has to do with do what thou wilt and occult practices and all this stuff. So, again... Go listen to the previous episode. It'll help you follow along here a little bit. But um, the Church of Thelema was on Winona Boulevard in Hollywood, of course. I mean, where else would it be? I mean, you know, Thelema and Satanism. Anton LaVey of Satanism talked about this quite a bit, that, you know, a lot of these occult practices or rituals, at the very least, the rituals, the satanic rituals, there has to be a theatrical um, element to it. And there really is a theatrical element to every part of our lives and our society and how it works. I mean, it's no different than, you know, the military uniforms. I mean, military uniforms are costumes in a way, you know, and 
when they were doing these occult rituals in this Gnostic mass, which is what his buddy took him to go see at the Church of Thelema, you know, they dress up in costumes and the there's like a set, you know, um, that's been decorated to create a certain type of ambiance. And that's really important and all this sort of thing. But yeah, this Gnostic Mass was a ceremonial ritual that was created by Crowley. Um, and while he was there, Jack Parsons, he was introduced to the leaders of the group there. And their names were Regina Cow, Jane Wolfe, and Wilfred Talbot Smith. I don't know a lot about them except for Wilfred Talbot Smith. I mean, he's just a very big occultist. He was obsessed with Thelema and Alistair Crowley and... He preached the good word of Thelema and up until his death, right? Pretty much. So, um, Jack Parsons went on to join the Californian branch of the Ordo Templi Orientis, or the OTO, at the request of Aleister Crowley. And he ended up taking over as their lodge leader. And I think a lot of it had to do with his connections to um, Caltech and... The fact that he was working on jets, I mean, it, it rose him in the ranks pretty quickly, I think. <laughs> um, and Parsons thought that a lot of this Thelemic magic and sex magic and these rituals like manifesting reality, he thought that they could be explained through like quantum physics, basically. And I don't know if you've ever looked into quantum physics, I mean... He might not have been wrong, completely wrong. I mean, I don't know. I'm not doing any of these weird rituals, but these people seem to believe that it works, and maybe it does. I don't know. Who knows? But, um, yeah, the Ordo Templi Orientis, OTO, um, that was a part of Thelema. I mentioned them on the previous podcast, so... Now, during this time when he was, like, really in the occult shit, when he was, like, really in it, he had taken up a lot of drugs. So he was doing a lot of cocaine. He was doing methamphetamines. He was doing opiates. And he was engaging in a lot of, like, pretty crazy sexual liaisons. liaisons. Um... He was, um, I think he was having a lot of gay sex, too, which, I mean, nothing wrong with that. Uh, no judgment here. I'm totally for gay marriage and all that. But um, I don't know. He was just a kind of a wild child. And, you know, he was working. This is while he was working at JPL. So, you know, that's where a place where like a lot of lives are on the line and there's a lot of real high stakes and he's, you know, <laughs> all coked up, messed up, you know, going to, you know, ritual sex orgies and, you know, during the day, day working on rockets, rocket ships. It's just, it's so strange uh, to me. It's just weird. Now... Because of all this crazy shit, he ended up getting booted from JPL. And they persuaded him to sell his stock in the company. 
and it was due to his involvement with Crowley and the Salemic Church and just the kind of controversies surrounding it. And that was in 1944. So it was then that Parsons used his defense contract money to convert an old mansion into a group house. Um, And this group house... You know, he wanted a bunch of, like... He wanted to be surrounded by a bunch of like-minded people. So there were a lot of artists and scientists and, um, like, pagan types. You know, people that were into, like, rituals. And he had writers there as well. And one of the people that ended up moving into this mansion was a guy named L. Ron Hubbard, who was a U.S. naval officer, and he was also a science fiction writer. Now, if you don't know, if you've never heard the name L. Ron Hubbard before, which most people have, I think, but he is the guy that went on to create Scientology. Um... So, I'm not gonna jump into Scientology just yet. I'm about to, because, you know, I'm now mentioning L. Ron Hubbard, and we're about to move into that realm there. So, okay, let me mention this. In a letter that Jack Parsons wrote to Alistair Crowley about L. Ron Hubbard, he said... Quote, Hubbard has an extraordinary amount of experience and understanding in magic. From some of his experiences, I deduce he is in direct touch with some higher intelligence, possibly his guardian angel. He is the most polemic person I have ever met and is complete accord with our own principles. And I wrote that down because that's interesting. I mean, this guy went on to create a fucking religion, okay? L. Ron Hubbard created a religion, and the religion is a fucking scam. I mean, it's a cult, basically. I mean, do some quick googs on Scientology. I mean, Leah Remini, um, and I'm going to talk about another person, Chris Shelton, in a bit, but there's... So many people that have talked about Scientology and it being this horrible, horrible religion that is just basically a cult. And I'm going to talk more about that in a bit. Let's try to stay on track here because this is a lot of like, I feel like this is a lot of kind of heavy information. This is a lot of kind of complex. Um, there's a lot of complexities to it. So, in the spring of 1946, Parsons asked Hubbard to help him accomplish a series of rituals that were based on what's called an Enochian system of magic. And this was in an effort to summon an elemental spirit called Babylon... And Babylon was also known as, quote, the Scarlet Woman, okay? Um, Because Babylon was a sensual type of entity. Now, they called this ritual Babylon Working. 
and I was looking into it a little bit. I definitely encourage everyone to type in Babylon working if you're, I mean, if you're interested in the ritual itself. But I'm just going to tell you the reasons they were trying to do this, basically. Um, part of Thelemic belief system involves goddess worship. And this goddess in particular, Babylon, the Scarlet Woman, they wanted to give, they wanted to summon her so that they could use sex magic to create an offspring that they called a moon child, which is odd. Um, if you've ever seen 2001 A Space Odyssey, that's how the movie literally ends. Um, there's this like moon child, there's this star child that is given birth to in the sky and... Um, it's a concept that goes back to Helena Blavatsky, but I don't have time to get into that. Okay, we'll talk about the moon child another time. <laughs> now, I have <laughs> this clip here. It's fucking funny, okay? This is some Scientology shit. Um, it's called Wacky Scientology Testimonials. Um, it's from 2016, and there's just some fucking funny interviews with these people that, you know, are in Scientology and they think they've got, you know, the enlightenment. They think they figured it all out and spiritual enlightenment and it's really funny. Makes it, oh yeah, by the way, I discovered this one thing and I thought I'd just tell you about it. And it's always like, are you kidding me? Like I literally closed the lecture, I started crying, I wrote a huge success story completely keyed out and it like directly applied to what was going on I was like this is crazy like it's almost like I got to audit it out by going on course anything that I'm encountering in life the book has a solution it makes you feel like you can do magic in the world now I mentioned that because there's this one interviewee who <laughs> she talks about a wand and having a wand and how Scientology is like having a wand with this magic wand boom better better Awesome. Heck yeah. <laughs> I feel like they left that in on purpose because this, the wand, the idea of the wand actually plays into this Babylon working ritual. So, Babylon working, like I mentioned earlier, Babylon is a sensual entity. So, while L. Ron Hubbard and Parsons were out in the, de they were out in the desert doing this, okay, Parsons would masturbate repeatedly, releasing his seed on a parchment while L. Ron Hubbard stood off to the side and chanted rituals and took notes, okay? And often Parsons' own notes on these rituals make mention of invoking with a wand, okay? And I know this is odd, this is kind of odd, but we talk about... I'm going to do a whole episode on Harry Potter at some point. And now I'm not saying that, you know, Harry Potter's wand is um, anything other than a wand. But, I mean, what, this stuff in real life, I mean, the, the magic going on in real life, I mean, Jack Parsons referred to his penis as his wand. So here we have... 
<laughs> the guy, the creator of Jet Propulsion Labs and the creator of Scientology in the desert masturbating with each other while chanting rituals trying to summon an elemental spirit called Babylon working. All right, are you following me so far? <laughs> Probably not, but that's okay. Just stick with me, right? So Parsons did this, like I said, to summon the Babylon, and guess what? Three months later, he fucking did. Or at least so he says, and so he believed, because he met a scarlet, red-headed woman by the name of Marjorie Cameron. You know, she had red hair and blue eyes, and Parsons went ahead and considered her to be the woman that he had attempted to invoke with his wand. So, and he was going to impregnate her with uh, a moon child, basically. Now, she did end up becoming pregnant, but instead of spawning a moon child, she decided to have an abortion. Now, um, I've got some stuff here written about Marjorie Cameron. She comes up quite a bit in the talks of the occult and Parsons and all this stuff because they had a kind of strong relationship there in the beginning. You know, he thought she was this entity that he had summoned in the desert with L. Ron Hubbard and you know it's strange um, she was a painter she was an artist and a lot of her works ended up um, delving into the esoteric and the occult and you can look a lot of these up on the internet and her art is actually very nice I think it's she was an interesting artist and she put these concepts, a lot of these concepts, into drawings. So, um, now Jack Parsons ended up dying in Mexico while he was on vacation with Marjorie Cameron. Now, what happened to him? He got blowed up, <laughs> basically. He got blowed up, which, of course, everyone is going to hear that and they're going to say, well, of course he got blowed up. He was you know, working in jet propulsion laboratories and he was making rocket engines. And, you know, that's why they say, oh, it's not rocket science because rocket science is actually really dangerous. But what had happened, apparently, what had happened was that while he was on vacation in Mexico, he also ended up taking a job, which doesn't sound like much of a vacation to me, but I don't know. Apparently he was working this job um, at an explosives factory for the Mexican government. So he was working for the Mexican government. And he was actually worried, kind of worried during this time and talking to Marjorie Cameron about how he was paranoid or worried that the FBI was looking for him because of, first of all, how he left with JPL and his connections with the occult. I mean, he was kind of paranoid um, and had done a lot of drugs, so, I mean, who fucking knows? <coughs> oh, excuse me. Um, now, apparently on June 17th, 1952, one day before him and Marjorie planned to leave Mexico... There was an explosion where he worked, and his injuries ended up killing him. 
So the official story, and I looked into this quite a bit. Now, the official story is that he spilled coffee that he mixed fulminate of mercury in. So he had coffee that he mixed mercury into and he spilt it. That's like how the official story goes. And a lot of his colleagues said that that was sounded very unlikely because he was very anal about safety and being cautious and he was his labs were always apparently really neat and clean and tidy. Um, you know, some of his colleagues speculated that there was some sort of plot to kill him. Um, and he, you know, he himself was paranoid about that sort of thing happening. Now, Marjorie Cameron also did not believe the official story and thought um, that either the police or, she said, anti-Zionist killed him since they were actually planning to move to Israel for his work. And when talking about the occult, secret societies, ancient mystery religions, Israel is going to come up. And, you know, I, I, I don't know the geopolitics of everything that's going on in the Middle East, but Israel is important. And it's something we'll probably end up talking about on another episode. Now, after his sudden death in 1952, Marjorie Cameron um, went into kind of a deep depression, and she started doing her own rituals, like blood rituals, basically, where she would cut herself and her wrist uh, to try and communicate with or invoke Jack Parsons' spirit. Um... And this was an interesting little tidbit that I found in 1952. Okay, I talked about the year 1952 in my UFO episode, which was like the second or third episode I did. Um, but there was a mass UFO sighting in 1952 in Washington, D.C., over the Capitol building. And when she heard about that, she said that, I mean, she said that it was Jack Parsons. It was because of Jack Parsons' death. Um, now, Jack Parsons died in June, and this sighting happened in July. I don't I mean, I doubt it had fucking anything to do with Jack Parsons, but but Marjorie came and seemed to think so. So what about L. Ron Hubbard? Where's L. Ron Hubbard during all this? Um, well, L. Ron Hubbard, lo and behold, is a piece of fucking shit. Okay, and he ended up stealing $10,000 of Parsons' savings, life savings, and he ran off to Miami <laughs> with Parsons' ex-lover before he met Marjorie. Um, her name was... Oh, did I even write it down? I think her name was Sarah. I don't have it written here, but... He went to Miami with her. He bought three yachts, and he ended up... Founding Dianetics and Scientology. Now we're about to kind of get into Scientology and the whole religion discussion a little bit. Now, because L. Ron Hubbard had a lot of involvement in Thelema and Aleister Crowley, I mean, L. Ron Hubbard was a big fan of Aleister Crowley. Funny enough, Aleister Crowley was not 
a big fan of L. Ron Hubbard, but L. Ron Hubbard was a fan of Crowley. And, you know, there are definitely similarities between Scientology and Thelema, the OTO, and Theosophy in particular. Theosophy we talked about on that episode with Helena Blavatsky. Helena Blavatsky created Theosophy, which we're about to... I'm going to refresh ourselves a little bit on that, but... um, I mean, yeah, I have written here, it's probable that Hubbard's fascination with the OTO and Crowley gave him the basic outlines to create Scientology because to achieve enlightenment you have to go through many numerical steps and ascend through these numerical steps on the way by giving money to said organization, said person, to gain access to more secrets and rituals, you know, and that's how they did it in Thelema, you know, they gave Crowley money and he would teach them things and the more you gave the more you learned basically so um scientology's adherents likewise you know ascend through steps on the path to cross what's called the void and become clear um science clear is what scientologists call enlightened basically like to be clear is to be enlightened fully enlightened basically um and Hubbard basically promised that if you were clear, then that would make you invulnerable to diseases and capable of controlling other people's actions and all this really crazy shit. Um, however, to achieve clear, as a Scientologist, you have to give money to advance and ascend and enact these rituals. Now, L. Ron Hubbard had some children, and one of his sons, his name is Nibs. <laughs> Poor guy. I mean, I mean, L. Ron Hubbard was a fucking nut. I mean, he named his son Nibs. Um, but Nibs said that the OTO's black magic was the inner core of Scientology. And... I mean, Hubbard is on record calling Aleister Crowley an influence and a friend. So, there you go, man. Scientology has connections to, major connections to Thelema and the occult. So, there are, like I said, there are a lot of similarities to theosophy. So, I have written down here from the website of Scientology what is Scientology, right? What is Scientology? This is from the website of Scientology that I'm going to read to you. Okay, it says, Developed by L. Ron Hubbard, Scientology is a religion that offers a precise path leading to a complete and certain understanding of one's true spiritual nature and one's relationship to self, family, groups, mankind, all life forms, the material universe, the spiritual universe, and the supreme being. Oh my God, that's everything. That's everything you could ever want to understand, right? (laughs) 
Scientology addresses the spirit, not the body or mind, and believes that man is far more than a product of his environment or his genes. Scientology comprises a body of knowledge which extends from certain fundamental truths. Prime among these are that one, man is an immortal spiritual being. Two, his experience extends well beyond a single lifetime. Three, his capabilities are unlimited even if not presently realized. And four, Scientology further holds man to be basically good and that his spiritual salvation depends upon only himself, his fellows, and his attainment of brotherhood with the universe. So that is from the Scientology website. Now I'm gonna now I'm gonna read to you from the Theosophical Society's website. Now Theosophy again was created in the late eighteen hundreds. Late eighteen hundreds, early nineteen hundreds by Helena Blavatsky, who influenced, you know, she was like a Crowley type, but she was the first to really I mean probably not the first, but she was the really popularized this sort of stuff in the West. Um, so listen to how similar these things sound. Okay, so the Theosophical Society. The Theosophical Society reserves for, and this is from their website. This is all from their website. The Theosophical Society reserves for each member full freedom to interpret any and all teachings. At the same time, it is dedicated to preserving and realizing the ageless wisdom which embodies both a worldview and a vision of human self-transformation. This tradition is founded upon certain fundamental propositions. One, the universe and everything within it are one interrelated and interdependent whole. Two, every being animate and inanimate from atom to galaxy is rooted in the same universal life creating reality. This reality is all pervasive. It can never be completely expressed by its parts since it transcends all its expressions. It reveals itself in the process of nature as well as in the deepest recesses of the mind and spirit. Now, we recognize the unique value of every living being. Therefore, we practice reverence for life, compassion for all, sympathy with the need of all individuals to find truth for themselves, and respect for all religious traditions. Each human has both the right and the responsibility to choose the ways in which he or she practices these ideals. Theosophy promotes understanding and unity unity among people of all races, nationalities, philosophies, and religions. Okay, I'm going to skip this little part. Um, now, these are the kind of... That's a little uh, preface, I guess, but this is the direct links, okay? The universe is cyclical in nature. There have been many universes. Each one manifests, develops, and dissolves back into the absolute reality. After a period of cosmic rest, a new universe appears again. Um, two, because everything proceeds from this one reality, there is only one common life that pervades and sustains the whole universe. Every form of life is an expression of this unity. There's a lot written here, actually. <laughs> I'm probably not going to read it all. Um, divisible universe is only the its densest part of this reality. So basically, the, theosophy is describing all these kind of intense, deep spiritual concepts. 
And that's what Scientology promises to deliver as well. And, you know, on the surface, Scientology's description on their website, I mean, it sounds all right, right? It's like, oh, Scientology addresses the spirit, not the body or mind, and believes that man is far more than a product of his environment or his genes. And all of this goes back to theosophy um, here, the from theosophy. Human consciousness is in essence identical with the ultimate reality. This reality is the root of our real self and it is shared by all beings. Um, the Theosophical Society is a little bit more, I would say, legit in terms of offering spiritual guidance. Like, <laughs> if you're really looking for that sort of thing, I mean, I think Theosophy isn't going to bankrupt you or indoctrinate you into a cult in the same way that Scientology might. Although it probably could, which is what I'm going to go ahead and talk about now just a little bit. Actually, let me mention one more thing. This guy named Chris Shelton. I will encourage you to definitely go look into Chris Shelton. Type him up on YouTube. He's was a Scientologist in the Sea Org for 27 years. And the Sea Org is the most intense. I mean, it is slavery cult shit. I mean, if you're in the Sea Org and Scientology, you're in the cult. You're in the shit hardcore. You're doing, like, basically free labor. Um, and it's horrible. It's horrible, horrible. And he speaks out about it now. He appeared on Leia Remini's show and has also spoken at length about Aleister Crowley and his connections with L. Ron Hubbard. So, there we go. Now... I wanted to comment now, I'm about to wrap the show up, but this all has to do with, I think this discussion we're having has to do with control, right? And Scientology, Scientology is an example, and it should be an example, and it should be a lesson to everybody, how religion controls people. Religion promises people enlightenment and inner peace and all these things. And yet, like Scientology, for example, everybody harps on Scientology not paying taxes. Well, churches don't pay taxes. I mean, Christian churches don't pay taxes. Catholic churches don't pay taxes. If you're a church, you don't have to pay taxes. <laughs> I mean, if you want Scientology to pay taxes, then every church needs to be paying taxes, right? Um, another thing a lot of people um, harp on Scientology is the money, the giving money. You have to give money to kind of ascend in a way. And while in Christian church, Catholic church, you're not giving money to ascend but you are giving money i mean tithes people give those and you're just giving money to this nameless i mean where's that money going you know it's like where does the money really go you know it's why you have a lot of pastors who are like a crowley type or a blavatsky type who you know they may they think they're spiritually enlightened masters and but they're not um and 
this is kind of a you know a lot a lot of different thoughts about this sort of thing i mean it's it's hard to talk about kind of because it's like uh, everyone feels differently about religion and you know what's out there and everyone kind of has their own truth um you know my problems just with like organized religion right and when you look at something like Scientology, I mean, it's just clear as day bullshit. And, you know, Xenu, that's another thing. Like, people make fun of Scientology for, because I guess there's like this, their god, their version of the grand creator is like this alien being called Xenu or something along that. I don't even fucking know. I tried to look into it a little bit, but it's kind of complicated. Like, I don't know, but I mean, is that any really any that different from like our version of God? Like most people, they envision God as like some bearded man living in the clouds, like making like judging everybody. Like I don't know. There's definitely some similarities. Like in L. Ron Hubbard, one of his most famous quotes is that you know science fiction writing won't make you rich but religion will and he got rich off of religion that was his goal that was what he wanted to do and i think that's says everything really so all right i hope you enjoyed this episode um the next episode is going to be a movie review actually we're going to be talking about marvel's eternals I'm pretty excited about this. I've been waiting for this episode for a while. So we're going to talk about Eternals and Ancient Aliens and the Anunnaki and all this like really trippy alien shit basically. So be on the lookout for that next episode. Um, go check me out, Plain Sight Podcast on Instagram. And I hope you'll join me for the next one. Thanks.